The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Cap Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well. Great. Well, you know, uh, next week is a week that a lot of people are looking at because it is suspense week in the California Capitol, which means all the bills that have been tagged to go to the suspense file. Uh, there's going to be the uh, uh, annual hearings on those in both the Assembly and the Senate to see which ones live and which ones don't. And so uh, there's one of the, we're tracking a lot of bills, of course, right now that are in the suspense file, but one that we're really interested in is uh, Senate Bill 809. Um, and to talk a little bit about what Senate Bill 809 is and who it might impact, we're, we're really fortunate today we have great guests on to talk a little bit about this bill. Uh, we are joined by Ken Oliver, who is the Vice President of Checker.org and Executive Director of the Checker Foundation down in Oakland. Uh, Ken, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Oh, absolutely. It's our pleasure, and we're glad to have you here because as I noted, uh, Senate Bill 809 is, is uh, the Fair Housing Act, and I was really hoping you could give us and our listeners uh, a rundown on what this bill is and what the potential impact of this bill could be. Sure. Well, some people may know the Fair Chance Act as its other name, um, which started several years ago, is Ban the Box, which basically prohibited um, employers and in some cases housing providers from asking the question of whether someone had an arrest or conviction history prior to accepting them into housing or providing them a job um, opportunity. And so in 2018, the California legislature, along with several other states and the federal government, eventually passed legislation that basically prohibited employers from asking those questions um, in the hopes that people who had conviction histories or arrest histories would not be discriminated against when they attempted to access housing or employment. Um, SB 809 is an extension of that legislation um, that happened in 2018 in California, because what legislators and, and activists and reform uh, folks have found is that it really didn't do the job. It really just delayed when someone could do a background check and delayed when someone could deny a person based on a criminal history or conviction record. Um, so in other words, in California, an employer or housing provider could not ask about criminal history until they made a conditional offer of employment or accepted somebody into housing, which then allowed them to then review that record and then deny the person based on what was in that record. And so with this piece of legislation would do, it would put a little bit more teeth in the original um, intention of the legislation. It would ban employers in California from posting job advertisements that discourage individuals with criminal backgrounds from applying. And, and how they plan to do that, or what this legislation proposes, is that it would actually require them to post what criminal convictions would attach to or be related to a particular job prior to even an interview process. So they would have to post that up front. <clears throat> they would also require employers to disclose their justification in writing for disqualifying a particular candidate based on criminal record, uh, a transparency that's critical for identifying and rectifying civil rights violations. And finally, the act would establish two different funds, fees from companies that would violate this to help pay for enforcement of the law, and also to help pay for the awards of those who file successful discrimination claims. 
I'm curious, how many people do you estimate are impacted by the current uh, state of the law? That's a great question. So in California alone, there are 8 million people with arrest or conviction records, which is about 25%, a little bit more of the entire population. So when you think about it, and you think about the collateral consequences that attach to an arrest or conviction record, um, it impacts a lot of people and a lot of people's families when people can't access housing, when people can't access employment um, because of those records. Uh, many companies wholesale discriminate against people who have records. And, and with the advent of AI, some of those applications and resumes get kicked out summarily before people even get a chance to interview for a job. Um, so this bill is really meant to kind of level the playing field and prohibit employers from being able to exercise that type of discrimination, especially when it comes to housing, because as we know, California suffers a huge uh, unhoused housing crisis um, and a large percentage of the, that population, especially in Oakland and San Francisco, are just as impacted people or people with records. Now, I've seen you some numbers. Maybe you can clarify on what kind of financial impact this has on the state uh, you know, the way the law is now. Sure. So, so the impact is devastating to the California economy. And it's kind of an unknown kind of number because it's not one that we talk about often, um, but it's an estimated $20 billion of the California GDP that's affected by people who are homeless and people who can't access employment, which is a huge, huge number. And that doesn't even count the amount of tax dollars that go in when people are employed. That just counts what happens when people uh, aren't accessing the economy. But when you think about what's contributed to the tax base, you can double and triple that number even because these people aren't working and contributing. They're not paying rent. They're not paying taxes. They're not paying um, buying things in the economy in the way that people who are employed do. Um, so it really has a devastating effect um, on the economy in the state. And it also has a devastating effect on the economy nationally. Well, you know, I know a lot of states have, have, as you noted, have uh, adopted ban the box laws over the year. Or in the last four or five years in particular, there's been a big movement toward this. And um, I've covered it in other states. But uh, refresh me, are all these bills pretty much the same? Is, is there anything different about California from how other states have maybe addressed this particular issue? Sure. Well, there are many different variations of what they call ban the box or fair chance or second chance. Um, this particular bill and what passed last year, SB 731, uh, DeRazzo's bill that actually did the biggest clean slate, sweeping clean slate legislation in the United States, um, really are attempting to be the most progressive of any state in the country, which is, you know, Kudos to California for for pursuing this in the way that they are to to give people access to the to economic mobility into the economy. Um, other states have different variations. Like some states don't require employers to keep on record the reasons why they deny people. Some states don't require um, the level of intensity when it comes to background checks as California does, or when you can ask the question. Um, some of them have it where you just can't ask on the application, but then during the interview process you can and ask it. And there's varying levels of enforcement. And so California was pretty much middle of the road as of 2019 through 2022. And as I mentioned, most of the studies from universities and most of the policy um, think tank studies have come out to say that basically ban the box has been relatively ineffective in moving the needle for providing people access to employment, primarily because it just delayed when an employer could actually deny you for reasons of having a record. So this bill is currently on suspense. Do you have any sense of what's going to happen with it? Sure. I, I think 
from some of the early rumblings that we've heard, although it's, you know, it's not etched in concrete, um, we think it's going to come out of suspense and has a good chance at, at, at passing. There's a lot of traction behind the bill um, from people in the state departments outside of the legislature. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking to lobbyists um, and lawmakers about the bill itself and talked about some of the amendments that were made a couple of weeks ago. Um, when they took out a provision specifically banning background checks by companies that weren't required to perform background checks. And so with the amendments that have occurred, we think that has a good chance of coming out of suspense. And if if, if not this year, next year, uh, to two-year bill cycle. Uh, Ken, you know, you have a vested interest in this, of course, because you've lived this experience. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about your experience? And I know you referred to your own situation as in a way, being very unique in that, um, you know, you had opportunities maybe presented to you that that a lot of people in your situation never would have had. So maybe can you give us a little bit of background that help people understand that? Sure. So one of the primary reasons that I'm so passionate about this work and providing pathways and opportunities for people who've been just as involved is because of my own circumstance in, in life. I did close to 24 years in California prison and spent a lot of those years in solitary confinement. Um, and, and part of what was responsible for my release is the help of Stanford University and a law firm by the name of Mayor Brown, um, who helped me secure a lawsuit against CDCR for having me in solitary confinement for that long. And when I came home and, and paroled to the Bay Area, one of the things I did is I went to work for a public interest law firm who was primarily responsible for ban the box legislation, not only federally, um, but also here in California. And they really allowed me to cut my teeth and learn policy about why ban the box was necessary, why the restoration of civil and human rights were necessary for people who suffered conviction histories, primarily because I didn't know at the time there were actually 48,000 collateral consequences that attached to people in the United States for people who have criminal records. And it's 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 really a holdover that has a thousand year history going back to King's England than this notion of civil death. And what happens when somebody violates the law? Are we taking away all of their civil liberties, their right to vote, their right to marry, their right to secure employment, their right to get occupational licensing or the right to housing? And so it really became a passionate issue of mine because I did land on both of my feet. Uh, I did suffer um, some reentry challenges when I came home, when it came to housing, when it came to employment. And I knew that most of the people that exit prison have terrible, terrible experiences accessing housing, for example, accessing livable wage, right? Typically people, men and women who exit the prison system are ushered into low wage, either high labor or service jobs that can't afford to pay rent, right? And so if you're living in Oakland, California, or San Francisco, or LA County, which is responsible for 80% of the prison population in California, it's very difficult to live off $15 an hour as a, as a grown adult. Um, so I became passionate about talking to companies, specifically tech and the knowledge-based economy, about how we could open up pathways to not only bridge the digital divide, but also usher people along into the future of work where they could access the middle-class economy. Because one of, one of the things that we know as a country is that the number one driver of mass incarceration and recidivism is poverty. And so when people don't have access to the economy, there's all different types of symptoms and weeds that kind of grow out of that social construct or environment. And so, you know, watching the ecosystem and looking at the landscape, usually if you can place people in middle of the road jobs, typically a lot of those symptoms start to go away. It's like watering plants, right? Um, so it just became a primary driver in my own 
professional trajectory to try to create space. And I started out doing policy work um, for this organization and, and was on the forefront of a lot of criminal justice reform policy in California, and then was able to be recruited by the private sector at, at Checker, which is a tech company, a HR tech company that focuses on background checks to really kind of evangelize this on a broader scale, a national scale. Um, what's interesting about Checker as a background check company is they actually employ more formerly incarcerated people than any company in California. Uh, close to 5% of our workforce is formerly incarcerated people, people who've served life. We have people up and down the career ladder in different verticals from customer service, entry-level positions, all the way to executive positions, which I'm a VP there. We have uh, senior software engineers and all different types of people who are making all different types of uh, income and, and careers. And we've suffered very little attrition. I think we have like a 1% attrition rate in the eight years that Checker's been doing it. Um, highest promotion rate of anybody, whether they walked out of Stanford or whether they walked out of San Quentin. Uh, the people that are justice impacted promote more um, than the people who haven't been justice impacted. So we really tried to build out a model and now we, we're focused on building um, educational programs for our customers. Uh, we have over 85,000 customers to teach them how to do fair chance hiring and evangelize that throughout California through narrative change and, and, and corporate change management. Well, we're certainly seeing a lot of uh, attention paid to prison reform, uh, certainly here in California. What do you think of the governor's uh, proposal uh, to completely reconfigure uh, how San Quentin is going to be utilized? Sure. I, I love that question because it's, it's a very interesting question. So San, for those people who know about the, the criminal justice system in California, San Quentin has kind of been a bastion of programming and rehabilitative programming the last 20 years. It's not like this new initiative that's happened because of its proximity to Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. There's a tremendous amount of programs in, in San Quentin, probably more than any other prison in the United States. And so when we look at like the people who have gotten out of San Quentin, there's literally like hundreds and hundreds of alumni who are doing amazing things all over this country. Um, so it's 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 interesting that the governor chose that one because it's kind of low hanging fruit. It's kind of already doing a lot of the rehabilitative stuff. Um, I would have loved to see us take a more proactive approach in a prison like Pelican Bay or a prison like Folsom or a prison that hasn't been known for rehabilitative programming and really starting with a bottoms up type of approach. How do we take the toughest prison and humanize and, and make that more um, of an investment into those people, into those programming programming mechanisms that have had uh, challenges in the prison system. Because at the end of the day, it's really about investing in people over punishment. And, you know, I, I found, you know, counterintuitively maybe to some people that when you invest in people, you usually get a better result than when you don't. Um, and so I'm hopeful that in this initial phase of pilot programming at San Quentin that we're actually able to take that and spread that and scale that out across to other prison systems, um, other prisons within California and possibly be a national model for um, other prisons across the country. Yeah, and I think I read that uh, California has a 60% recidivism rate. Is that, is that about it? 60% recidivism rate. And, you know, when you, when you, when you break that out, it, it depends on how you define recidivism. California redefined what recidivism was uh, in the nineties where they made I think in the 2000s, excuse me, where recidivism was actually going back to prison. But when you add in arrests and time at local jails, the recidivism rate over time usually jumps up to about 80 percent. Whoa. And as, and as I mentioned, the, the primary driver of that is when people don't have access. Right. I, I know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people um, 
who have had gotten access either through the nonprofit sector, some who work for the state government, um, some who've gotten into the corporate sector like myself, they just don't recidivate. Because once you have dignity in the work that you're doing, once you have a career, once you have something you can hang your hat on and you can provide for your spouse or your partner or your significant other and your kids and you can do all of those things, now you have much more of an incentive not to run left or run right and run askew um, of the law. And you just, you know, it, it's, it's something that people invest in when they have pride and dignity in what they do. So like my my North Star for myself is just providing as many pathways is possible for people to have access to what most of us on a daily basis take for granted, which is access to livable wage work where we can go to the grocery store and buy stuff and go on vacation and pay a mortgage. Um, and I think when you give people access to that, you see a lot better result. And you, you actually have a really fascinating story. You were not only in prison for almost 24 years, you spent a big chunk of that time in solitary confinement yep. and you really educated yourself. In fact, I, I read that one of the problems you ran into is that you've been reading a book by George Jackson and, yep. and they use that to tag you as a gang member. Yep. And uh, I, George Jackson was a pretty well-known name 40 yep. years ago. I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about him and about that book? I, I, maybe our listeners might not be familiar, but I mean, he was involved with Angela Davis, you know, yes. Bob wrote a song about him. He was a big deal at one time, but right. now people don't really know who George Jackson was. Well, well the, the prison officials know who he is. And, you know, the, <laughs> George Jackson is, is kind of the bane of prison officials' existence because of what he represented. And what he represented was somebody who stood up to the system. And when you look at American history, it's not just CDCR, like I wanna give everybody an A for intention. Like we, we, people who have stood up to the system typically have been met with a certain force or a certain violence, whether you know it's somebody as benign as Martin Luther King or somebody as radical as um, George Jackson or Martin Luther King who had different, I mean, uh, Malcolm X, excuse me, who had different types of ideas. And so, you know, for, for people of color who come to prison, reading about a 19 or 20 year old George Jackson and the book Solidad Brother is almost like, you know, an introductory course to our experience when you come from the inner city. And so, you know, I thought it was one of the most fascinating books I've ever read, you know, his whole trajectory of how he educated himself in prison and how he ended up meeting Angela Davis and all these attorneys and these people around the world came to this guy's aid um, because of his struggle. He had a one to life sentence off for a $70 gas station robbery in Pasadena, California. And then when his brother um, went to the Marin County Courthouse in 1970 and attempted to free him, even though he wasn't there that day, tried to free several San Quentin prisoners, his name and his case and his, his writings became kind of like international fare um, in the height of the civil rights and black power movement. He was connected to Huey, Huey Newton out of Oakland and was a member of the uh, Black Panther Party. And, you know, I read his material, but right alongside his material, I was reading books by Warren Buffett, you know, and even read books by Donald Trump, right, or, or and, and other people, Tolstoy. So I became an avid reader because that was my safety valve. That was the way that I kept my humanity was by having these conversations with some of the brightest minds in the world. Um, but prison officials, I think, were worried about people reading that type of literature. It's kind of a McCarthyism type of deal where they think that you're going to wake up one day and maybe channel a George Jackson or a Malcolm X or somebody else. And so they use that as the mechanism to say that people were gang members, specifically if you were black. Um, and they did that to me, even though there was, I didn't do anything like other than have a book that they let me have in prison. Um, 
you know, no one said I did anything. I didn't do anything other than that. And so what happened when I went to solitary is that I actually became more intentional about reading even more, but this time I focused on the law because I didn't understand how in the year, I think it was 2007, that a state, much less CDCR, could put a person in a prison under a prison for reading a book. And I, I just became fascinated with constitutional law, First Amendment, due process, cruel and unusual punishment. Like, you know, the, the founding fathers talked about a lot of these different ideals about being able to have mental freedom. And here I was being punished for daring to read somebody else's ideas. So it became like this kind of idea police that were shackling me to the bottom of, of a prison system. And after studying the law for several years, I filed a you know civil rights lawsuit and and you know just because I, it's like hitting a lottery ticket. I got lucky. Stanford and Mayor Brown came in to help me on it, and, and we were successful at convincing the state that they violated my civil rights and what they did. And so they they settled settled with me um, to do that. But that's how when I came to the Bay Area, I ended up being a paralegal um, for this public interest law firm who was involved with the hunger strikes that happened. I don't know if you guys remember several years ago, there was the largest hunger strikes in California history were down at Pelican Bay and at Corcoran, which I was a part of. 30,000 of us uh, did hunger strikes. Three people died in that hunger strike for the way that um, the California prison system was conducting solitary confinement based on this like status of associates and all this stuff type of stuff. Um, and those hunger strikes inevitably led to California deconstructing that system. And I was a part of that. And just um, it's kind of how I landed here today. Ken, I'm... I'm curious about how you were received when you started being sent to Sacramento after you got out and you and you were able to get into these positions you started being sent to Sacramento to talk to lawmakers about your experience and about uh possible reforms you know we're such a polarized uh political environment right now and you know uh you know there's still a lot of folks who are you know put them put them in jail throw away the key kind of a Kind of a mentality what you know what kind of reception did you get when you first started talking to lawmakers and has it changed at all over the years as especially as your own political not your uh employment career has has really evolved into something really really solid and admirable yeah i appreciate that i think one of the biggest keys to my success is the way that i've been received because i've been embraced so like, you know, for most men and women who come out of prison, you know, you hope that you can put that experience in the rear view. You hope that you can rebuild your life and people won't ask a lot of questions and stigmatize you and say that like, because you were in prison, you don't deserve this or you can't live here. Or you can't do that. And that's kind of how I came out of prison, to be honest with you. I said, OK, I'm going to go to school and, and get my paralegal certification and kind of just go to work somewhere and hope that this like goes away. Um, but what I found in the Bay Area specifically is that actually my experience and the knowledge that I had legally was embraced. And I wasn't even out of prison two or three weeks when I was being asked to speak at universities and to speak at law firms about the horrors of solitary confinement and my own experience. And I was working at a public interest law firm for maybe three months, two to three months. And I remember the executive director called me in one day and he said, Ken, you know, we knew that you could write legal briefs because, you know, you, you helped litigate yourself out of prison, but we didn't know that you could articulate as well as you do. So we want to send you to Sacramento to be on the forefront of some of these criminal justice policy reforms. This was in 2019. 
And we were in the process as a community of fighting for voting rights for people who were on parole. And, you know, I got thrown in the fire right away. Didn't know a lot about policy, but I didn't know how to advocate for a position and worked with some of the biggest and best criminal justice reform organizations in the state, learned a lot, um, worked with policymakers at groups like Policy Link who weren't even involved with criminal justice reform big, but just were great policy advocates. Um, and then like policymakers, I think, who represent the community were drawn to lived experience. I think that, you know, one of the things that Senator Skinner told me one time is, you know, it's great to be able to talk about statistics and all of that, but it's better when you can bring stories of lived experience and how it impacts Californians. And so I was able to go up there and, and build relationships and talk about some of the pain points for California, which inevitably led to me talking about the biggest pain point, which was the reentry in California and, and what happens in reentry. And I had the privilege of becoming a executive director at a nonprofit after I after my stint there and started campaigning the legislature and the governor's office to allow us to build out a reentry program that was similar to Job Corps, where we would actually provide a tech training and knowledge-based economy training program that was residentially based. In other words, we would give people housing like the first year of college. We would feed them like the first year of college, and we would present a learning environment for people to learn tech skills and knowledge-based economy skills in boot camp style uh, learning six to nine month programs. And then we would work with employers to place them at jobs at $60,000 a year or more. Um, and I had hundreds of conversations with legislators. And what was interesting about work and workforce conversations is that Republicans and Democrats both love the idea of people getting out of prison and going to work. So I had very little, very little argument from either the most conservative places, even in Fresno and other places versus people who were representatives from Oakland or San Francisco or L.A. And I love talking about it because I love sharing with people that like, listen, if you do the right thing and you you go to school, you get educated, uh, you focus on work that you can basically pathway yourself back into the middle class economy and and some type of life for yourself and your family and your loved ones. And in 2021, we got written into the budget for $27 million to build out this program, um, which was really the first of its kind in the country. It was me and five guys. We were all former lifers and the governor and the legislature invested in us because primarily because we were proximate and because uh, we were proximate leaders who understood what it takes to pathway people out of recidivism. And you have to invest in people. You have to provide space for people to reset, rebuild, regroup, and then reintegrate back into the community. Because the California system, unfortunately, for the last 60 years, so I think since 1972, has paroled people with $200 of gate money and sent them to the Bay Area or LA County on a bus and said, go fend for yourself. And so when someone's been in prison 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, they have no skill sets that match what's happening in the market. They have no housing. They have their, their support networks primarily have dissipated over time in many cases. I'm not sure with all of the collateral consequences what we expect men and women to do when they're siloed in that way and they're kind of like exiled from the mainstream. And so, you know, my pitch was is if 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 we're if California's spending $140,000 a year to lock someone in a cage, 
you can give me half of that money and I promise I'll, I'll make sure a person never comes back to prison. They'll have a job. They'll be contributing to the economy. They'll be paying rent. They'll be doing all the things that we want them to do if we just invest in them. Like, let's get them skilled up. Let's reskill them, upskill them. Let's, you know, work with employers to get them placed. Let's um, give them access to housing and, and an automobile and car insurance and all the things that like we need to survive in a capitalist economy. And so, uh, yeah, I was really excited to be a part of that. And that's, you know, ended up leading to my trajectory at Checker. Um, but I just, you know, I, I think that California was really progressive and I'm just, I'm humbled that they believed in proximity because I think no matter what the social problem is, you have to talk to the people who are experiencing it and then ask them, how do you solve it? And then you give them space to actually participate in solving it versus the other way is like, we're going to look at you from afar and we're going to solve your problems for you. That, that approach really hasn't worked that well <laughs> in, in, in policy. So, yeah. Well, Ken, uh, I will say you're you're a fabulous spokesperson for uh, the kind of reform you're seeking, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on uh, the Cap Weekly podcast today. And we will definitely be watching to see what happens with SB 809, and uh, we're all going to know by sometime next Thursday, maybe late, because I think they're going to be going through hundreds of bills uh, on that day. But uh, we'll 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 know by Friday morning, I think, uh, what's what the fate is. So. Um, We'll uh, we'll be thinking of you either way. Thanks thanks again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I, yeah, I, thanks, Ken. Yep, I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you guys again, and hopefully about the bill passing at some point. Maybe yeah, well, I have a feeling we might we we might hit you up again. That could happen. <laughs> I look forward to it. You guys have a great weekend. All right, you too. Too. Okay. See you later. Well, that was a fascinating discussion with Ken. His story is uh, it really seems like coming out of a book, frankly. Yeah. Well, I mean. Uh, you know, I've mentioned on the show before, you know, my daughter ha has worked in the, the jail system before. She's a mental health professional. And, you know, you see this, you hear the same stories over and over at the local level. They call them free, frequent flyers, which just, you know, got people and she worked both male and female prisoners. You know, they get out and two weeks later, they're back because they really were not equipped whatsoever to be back out on the street. You know, uh, jail was the only place they were getting mental health treatment. There's the only place they were getting drug addiction treatment, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, there's got to be a better way is what I think most reformers say. And I think even even some of the hardcore, you know, hey, lock them up, folks have to acknowledge that, uh, you know, there's got to be a better way than, than maybe how things are going. And, you know, it doesn't do any good to have people just in the revolving door in and out of jail it really doesn't do whatever side of the of the equation you're politically you're on it doesn't do greater society any good so hey you know kudos kudos to guys like him that's that's really inspiring to hear those kinds of stories well i think it's time for us to turn to the 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 final piece of our podcast each week who had the worst week in california politics the worst week worst week worst week yeah, and you know, uh, I for me, sitting today in the budget, uh, the governor's um, May revised budget presser, you know, for me, it, it was a pretty easy one because I think Gavin Newsom has been pretty fortunate throughout his, his governorship to have a lot of money. Even at the start of COVID, when it looked like we were going to have this massive, massive, historically huge budget deficit, that didn't even pan out. He still ended up with a budget surplus. And now, our uh, twenty approximately twenty two billion dollar budget surplus or uh, excuse me budget deficit from January 
as of today's turned into uh, about a $32 billion budget deficit. Um, you know, Gavin talks a lot. It'll take a little while for us to figure out all of the things he said and to where the monies are going to come from to, to plug that hole. But, you know, this is this is going to be a new experience for him. And as positive as a spin as he tried to put on it today, I cannot imagine it's going to be fun uh, after all these years of, uh, you know, his party specifically getting pretty much everything they want to now have to look up and say, okay, somebody's got to get a haircut somewhere and nobody's going to want to do it. So I, I think he his it cannot have been fun for him to, to go out there knowing he's going to have to, to say, you know, what he wanted to say was, hey, the tax revenues went through the roof and now, you know, it's a $5 billion budget deficit, which is bad enough, but, you know, $32 billion, I'm sure that, uh, you know, he's he's not sleeping as well right now as as uh he has been in previous years around this time yeah i would agree i i do say that there was a moment where i thought maybe it would be the pork producers because uh there was a challenge to proposition that was going to put real strict limits on what factory farms could do uh about the around the way that they treated pigs and that lost at the supreme court and and the proposition was upheld now what i found fascinating is that the the makeup, it was a 5-4 decision, and it was not liberals versus conservatives. This was, The decision itself was very interesting. It had to do with interstate trade and the limits there on, on, on restricting interstate trade. But ultimately, the pork producers who were challenging the proposition lost. The proposition will stand. Uh, however, uh, in reading about this, it sounds like about 99% of the pork that Californians eat is produced out of the state. So really, uh, you know, if it's a not really a Californian getting their ox cord, uh, pardon the pun, uh, on this particular one. Uh, the California pork industry is is tiny compared to the actual pork industry at large. But uh, so yeah, I would say that uh, if I had to pick a, a winner, it would be uh, Governor Newsom having to uh, figure out what he's going to do with a $32 billion hole. Well, um, with that, I think uh, we've reached the end of the line for this week. Uh, Tim, thanks again. Uh, this was a lot of fun. It was a really enjoyable a conversation with Ken Oliver and uh you know hey we'll we'll send some good thoughts to Gavin Newsom maybe he won't have such a bad evening uh tonight maybe he'll, he'll sit down with the family and he'll worry about his other issues come tomorrow but he'll have a good evening uh for one one more night before he has to start worrying about all this stuff again I know he's he's you know and I should actually I'm going to say one thing before we go so uh this will air on Monday and on Wednesday there's going to be a lunch at the Sacramento Press Club announcing the new scholarships. And I am very excited to say that there's a new scholarship named for John Howard, who is our longtime Capital Weekly editor here, uh, currently runs our oral history program uh, where we're doing uh, interviews of significant Californians. And they've named a scholarship for John Howard. And in true John Howard fashion, when they called and asked him, he said, hey, this doesn't mean I have to pay for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he was insured no they already had the money for it but in any case wednesday lunch if you look up sacramento press Club, if you go to the website uh you'll find things you can go and uh hobnob with the hoi ploy of, of sacramento journalistic society and uh and celebrate these new uh new scholarships well i yeah i could not find a more deserving person i know they rotate these and 
you know, every year they get, they, they name new folks, but John was long overdue. Um, you know, anybody who spent any time around the Sacramento political scene in the last 30 years would, t- would probably say the same thing. Uh, so kudos to John, one of the best guys in the business, one of the best reporters in the business. And, uh, yes, if you're around and you want to be part of that, I highly recommend it. Okay. Well, I'll talk to you next week. All right. Take care, Tim. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.